Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, and we'll be reading chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you not that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of God for the people of God. All right, have a seat. I'm excited to start a new series. We made it through Revelation, and now we're starting a new series on the wisdom books called The Quest for Wisdom. And so you're probably asking yourself, why did we just read from Genesis 3 then? Uh, well, and it's because, and as Alyssa was talking about the, the, the importance of Genesis 1 through 11, it's, it's as equally important as the Gospels. You cannot go back to it enough. Everything in the Scriptures points back to, it uh, hyperlinks back to the garden but then it also looks forward to Jesus as we, we've heard of him as the second Adam where they failed, he succeeded. And so it's important to look back and it's important to look forward. Um, the wisdom books, to have a proper understanding of really what they're getting at, we have to understand what happened in the garden. So that's why I'm starting here. This is, this is an introduction to the series. So I'm going to use Genesis 3, but I'm, I'm not going to parse out every single word and verse um, we're using it kind of as just a starting point with this general narrative that really is um, an example of the larger narrative taking place within the wisdom literature. And we'll get into detail about why that is. Um, before I do that, I do want to give credit to where credit is due. I, I spent the sabbatical uh, listening to the Bible Project podcast, and I've, I've, just, I've listened to it before some, I've watched some of their videos. I don't know if you all have heard about them, but It's a group of guys out in Seattle, and they just have some really uh, awesome biblical scholarship that they make really practical and applicable and creative through the way in which they um, communicate the truths of the scriptures. And so I listened to them, 
And I started listening to the wisdom books. And as I was thinking about our next series, uh, listening to their podcast on the wisdom literature, I was like, man, this is really getting me fired up. It's really getting me excited, kind of nerded out on, on their stuff. And just thought, this is a great place for us to go. Um, having been at 30,000 feet with Revelation, this is really going to go to the ground level with practical day-to-day living, because that's what the wisdom literature is really about. So a lot of what I'm going to be using is, especially in this talk, is um, taken from some of their stuff. And I would encourage you as we're do- doing this series to go and listen to their podcasts uh, and to watch their videos. Um, great help just understanding what's going on in the larger scope of the grand story of the scriptures. Let me pray and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, please uh, nourish us. Open our eyes to see the truth of what it proclaims. Help us to see our need to find um, from you, the wisdom that we need, the insight that we need to know how to live as we were meant to live, to live well, to flourish, to um, live in a way that um, not only brings great satisfaction to us, but great glory to you for the good of our neighbors, for the good of our community, for the good of our families, for us personally. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Um, A few questions we're going to be answering to start here. First of all, what are the wisdom books and why are they important? I'm going to kind of intro into that. And then my main three questions I really want to answer this morning is what is wisdom? Where are we supposed to find it and what will it give us? That's where Genesis 3 comes in. But first of all, let's ask the question or answer the question, what are the wisdom books and why is it important? Why do I believe it's important? I'm going to try to sell you on why I think you should show up every Sunday and we should study this together. So this is, this is myself, in a sense. Um, the wisdom books are um, considered to be um, books, the books of um, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. We're, we're going to be delving into Job a little bit, but Job is uh, nearly 50 chapters, so um, we're not going to go through the entire book of Job, but we will be referencing Job a lot. We're going to go through the first nine chapters of Proverbs, We're going to go through the entire book of Ecclesiastes, and then I'm adding in, and this is a little bit controversial, but I'm adding in Song of Solomon. So the wisdom books are really books that are all attributed to Solomon writing them or someone who is writing in the voice of Solomon, someone who is Solomon-like in their wisdom, another king or, or someone who is following in the footsteps of what he's first established. Though That is the collection of the wisdom books, and in Jewish culture, um, the Hebrew word for wisdom is chokmah. And understanding that word is really the key to understanding why these books are so important. Um, chokmah in Jewish culture, was wisdom was greatly valued. And it was worth, they believed it was worth committing one's life to search for and to find it in order to order your life properly. So obviously from the beginning of time, once sin entered the world, people recognize things don't work as we think they should. Things don't seem fair. Things don't seem just. They seem out of our control. And in seeking to grasp control of life, we go to a lot of different places in order to feel like everything's okay. So if we can just control some minute corner of space and time, then we can feel like our lives are are in order. And that somehow gives us peace, right? Well, the search for wisdom is twofold. We search for wisdom in our own eyes, doing what we think is right, apart from God. We're born into that predicament. Or we discover that we don't have the wisdom to make life work. We don't have the proper insight and perspective about our lives, and so we need to find it somewhere else. 
And we, since we all recognize that, we go to a bunch of different sources. And the Jewish, in Jewish culture, they were saying that the right kind of wisdom, proper wisdom, is only found at the feet of God. In other words, it's found underneath the right tree, if you will. And we'll get into more of that in just a second. Where the book of the prophets, so that, you know, the scriptures are typically split up into the prophets, the law, and the wisdom literature. And where the prophets in the Old Testament were telling people where they sinned and how to respond to their sin with repentance and faith by turning back to God in obedience, the law was acting then much more preventative, telling God's people how to avoid the sin in the first place. And then the wisdom books are more about knowing the difference between what is right and wrong, what is good and what is evil, and how to develop the skill of living well in a broken world where things don't always work out like we want to or things don't seem fair. These books are, offer insight into to the, the best way to think of wisdom that I read this week. A guy named Trimper Longman defines it as the skill of living well. And although wisdom is the main word used to describe what these books are about, other words are synonymous. So you're going to hear the words uh, discipline, correction, success, knowledge, understanding, discretion, prudence, justice, what is fair, what is right. The key thing to remember there is that wisdom is not just defined as knowledge. That's typically in our culture how we think of wisdom. If I can go just learn enough or acquire the proper amount of education, then I will somehow be wise. That is not what biblical wisdom is. The wisdom books are, as I said, concerned with one's immediate experience, the daily choice between life and death. Going back to the garden, it's the choice Adam and Eve were, were tasked with the choice between life and death, that when we are choosing to live in the wisdom of God, we are choosing life versus death. We're saying yes to something and no to something else, and that choice is a critical choice in our lives, that it matters. It, it is critical for us to consider where we find our wisdom, our insight to living well. So for me personally, as my wife will tell you, one thing she loves about me is my sense of direction. I am so directionally challenged um, that it's, it's a bit scary at times. And Natalie is like a human compass. So you can imagine the conflict that ensues in our marriage, um, dating back, going back to when we were dating and we were walking around Paris. I went to go visit her because she was studying abroad. And she's like, you have no idea where you're going, do you? And I was like, I have no idea where I'm going, and I have no idea where to get anywhere here. And she was like, if you're going to lead our marriage, you're probably going to need to learn how to get places. And then, of course, GPS became very popular in my marriage with Sage. And so I learned, I learned that I was not very good with directions. I was able to own that. I was able to admit that. And then go to a source that was helping, uh, it was helping me in that weakness. It was helping to fill that up and meet me in my weakness. So, so where you might think, if I told you, hey, I don't, I don't have a good sense of direction. You might think to yourself, as someone who does have a good sense of direction, well, you must just be really stupid. You must just not know enough. But I have the wisdom to know where to go to meet my need. That's what true wisdom is. That's biblical wisdom, is to know where to go when we can't figure life out, when life is too overwhelming, when we don't know how to navigate it, if you will. It is our GPS, in a sense. Um, so, 
this week I'm going to introduce, do, do this introduction, but next week we're going to look into to the life of Solomon, who we believe is the author of most of the wisdom literature, or as I said, people are speaking in his voice. And here's something interesting to learn about Solomon, and I'll just kind of tease it with this. Solomon in 1 Kings 3, we're told how he got the wisdom that he, he attained. And it says that God revealed himself to Solomon in a dream, and he invited Solomon this really interesting exchange where God is essentially playing a genie in a bottle. He shows up to him in a dream and he says, ask anything that you want and I will give it to you. Essentially, you have one wish. Ask it and I'll grant it. We don't see God really interact with any other, anybody else in the scriptures in that way. It almost seems kind of superstitious, right? Or too far-fetched. But he says, you have one wish. Ask of me. He really says, ask of me anything and I will grant it. And this was a test for Solomon. It's a test similar to the test that we read about in the garden. Where are you going to find wisdom? Where are you going to find insight for right living? And this is Solomon's response. It's interesting. He says, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king. This is the king of a nation, right? He's got all the power, all the resources. Israel's at the height of its power and influence. This is essentially the president of the United States. He's the most powerful man in the world. And this is how he answers the question of... granting one wish. O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I don't know how to go out or to come in. He's directionally challenged, right? I don't know whether to go left or go right with all of this power. I don't know how to maintain it, how to steward it. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people Too many people to be counted. You've given me so much responsibility over so many things, I don't even know whether to go left or go right. And he says, so please give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. He could have anything in the world that he wanted. He didn't ask for more tanks. He didn't ask for more horses. He didn't ask for more bows. He didn't ask for more wealth and more gold. He said, give me wisdom from you. To which God responds, because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have essentially passed the test and asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I'll give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. So essentially, I'm going to make you the wisest person that's ever lived. No one's going to be wiser after after you and no one's been wiser before you. So God grants Solomon wisdom unlike any other. And in that wisdom, through both his life's awesome victories that we see in Solomon's life and through his brutal failures, he records what he learns about discerning good from evil, about developing this skill of right living. What does all this have to do with Genesis 3? Well, where Solomon passed the test in asking God for something more, something more valuable than anything in all creation, Adam and Eve failed. They were set up in the garden to receive wisdom from God in doses that they could handle. So you, you've probably all, you know, you've, you, I don't know if you've struggled. I've struggled with the idea of the two trees and why God puts those there. And then why does he put the command to not eat of that tree? Why just not even create it? Well, there's two, two parts. One, God can't exist apart from his law. So wherever he is, there is law. There's something we are to follow. And he is giving this to them as a way to say, I want you to choose me. I want you to choose to live in obedience to me because as we know, that's one sign of true love to someone is that I could choose something else, but I'm choosing you. I'm saying no to this to say yes to you. 
And they had the freedom to do that. And God knew, essentially, if you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if your eyes are opened, you will, in, in a way, OD, you will overdose on wisdom. You will know too much. I mean, it's kind of like if, my, if I'm watching a movie that's not appropriate for my kids or something, if they come in and they see something that they're not supposed to see, that can hijack their minds. That can be traumatic for their development. They're knowing things. They're not ready to know. They, they don't know how to handle those things. And God knows that Adam and Eve are children being raised up into maturity. He's saying, this contains something you're not ready for. So you're going to have to find it from me, and I'm going to give it to you in proper doses like a good parent would. I'm going to delve it out to you as you can handle it, and as you can handle more and more and more of it, you're going to grow into this wisdom, but you have to find it from me. You can't short-circuit that. In fact, it will, it will actually destroy you, which it does. And so the original sin is that the serpent who is wise says he's crafty, right? So even the, the evil one can obtain this, this wisdom. He uses it for, obviously, evil purposes, and he gets them to not trust God and not trust his word, not taking God at his word and trusting his promises, and this obviously brings death. So since Adam and Eve failed, we've each been born in need of finding the source of true wisdom that leads to life. This is why this series is called A Quest for Wisdom, because it's a quest I believe we're all born into. We're all on. So you have to ask yourself, where are you going to find wisdom? What is the source for your learning how to live well? And the scriptures are going to address, through the wisdom literature, every single aspect of right living that you could possibly think of, from your money, to the way you relate to other people, to forgiveness, to um, material possessions, to stewardship, to every, every facet of life. We'll learn how to deal with those things and manage those things and steward those things well. So let's define here in greater detail what this wisdom really is. And that, again, that, that Jewish word is chokmah, and it's presented as an attribute of God that acts as sort of an invisible force woven into the fabric of all things. Here's what this means. This is why creation makes us think of God. He's woven right thinking into the design of the universe. He's shown his wisdom and how he created things to be so intricate and precise. This is why when Job, who we'll get to later on in the series, after he's lost everything, we know he's lost more than any person that's ever lived, all his children, all his livestock, all his possessions, as a test to sh for him to, to show God and to show Satan that he will still love and turn to God. After he's lost all that and suffered greatly and comes to the conclusion in his lowest point, at the very end of the book, he comes to this conclusion. God, because his friends are telling him, <clears throat> listen, God has to operate on the principle of his justice. So in order for, for, for you to understand your suffering and have an answer to it, you must have to figure out what you've done wrong. For this much bad to happen to someone, it has to be in equal parts to what you've done wrong. And that's not at all why Job's suffering. It actually tells us in the book of Job that Job is innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. And yet he's, going to, he's being set aside to suffer more than any human being ever. And so the fair question is to ask is, is this fair? And it's not fair. But we're not meant to get the answer in that book of why everything's happening to Job the way it is. So Job, of course, gets to the point of his life where he says, God, if, this is, if I'm not suffering because I've done something wrong, then you must be incompetent at running the universe. Because that means suffering is random and out of your control, and it's just happening to me. And it can just happen to anyone. 
to which God shows up and does something really cool. He takes Job on this virtual tour of the whole cosmos. He's like, can you order the stars? Can you tell the currents which way to go, the wind which way to blow? Can you put the planets in their spots? And, of course, Job is overwhelmed with, no, I could never do any of that. And it's one lesson after another of seeing that God is wise in the way that he orders creation beyond anything that we could even imagine, to which Job responds in repentant repentant faith and trust, a.k.a. wisdom. Because of that experience, he sees that God is trustworthy, that he is the source for wisdom. So God then restores Job and blesses the nations because of his repentance and him seeking after God, even though he doesn't understand everything that's going on. He says, I'm still going to trust you. So since hokmah is this invisible force, when we're making wise decisions, all of us are tapping into hokmah. In other words, we're able to see things for what they really are from God's perspective. Hokmah is available to everyone, but best harnessed in relationship to its creator. So we know people who are not Christians. We know people who are not living well, who are making poor decisions, but are, in a sense, wise. They know a lot. They might have a good perspective on things, but they use that for their own selfish means. And the right use of hokmah will shape and guide our lives, giving us helpful perspective on both the good and the bad, the joys and the pains, the successes and the suffering, a godly perspective, an understanding a godly understanding, if you will. So, like I said, and this is really important, it's not just intellectual knowledge. You're not just wise because you know a lot of information. You are wise because you choose life. It is applied knowledge. Tremper Longman says, it's the ability to avoid problems, to handle situations, to understand people and how they work, even more how the world works. It's not having the most knowledge or the highest IQ. So you can be the smartest guy in the room, but the biggest fool. Proverbs tell us that. Wisdom in the Jewish tradition is more akin to emotional intelligence than intellectual intelligence. I'm very thankful for that. I've always had more emotional intelligence than intellectual intelligence. In fact, in Proverbs 30, wisdom is attributed to four different animals. Did you all know this? I read this for the first time this week. It's affirming ants for their wisdom, rock badgers, (laughs) locusts, and lizards. And it's saying they're wise, and they don't have a high IQ. And you know why they're wise? Because ants store up food all summer. Rock badges build their houses on rocks. Locusts live in unity, sticking together in formation. Lizards are even living, as it says, in royal palaces. They know the right place to go and the right place to live and the right people to associate with. So having wisdom doesn't mean you'll not suffer or that you'll attain success and prosperity, which is what Ecclesiastes is all about. It does mean that you will see things as closely to the way God does is we can perceive as human beings the same way a child learns to understand why a parent does what they do. So where are we supposed to find it? We're supposed to find it from God as the right source. And that's where Genesis 3 really comes in to play here. You know, God has, in Genesis 1 through 2, he's created all things. He's given this benediction after each day. He says, this is good. And then the first time he gives a malediction, he says something is bad is right after he's created man, and he sees that man is alone. And he says, this is bad. I will create a helper for him. And this word helper, it's highly misunderstood in our culture because I don't think we put a proper value on the worth of women in our culture. And this has been a problem for forever. 
where because in a biblical sense it's saying man is head and woman is helper, we somehow put that in some sort of hierarchical order that men are somehow more important than women are. And that's not at all what this word means, helper, in Genesis chapter 3. And it's really important to understand in relationship to the wisdom literature because wisdom is personified in the wisdom literature. It's, saying, it's even saying that wisdom is a woman in certain parts. Lady wisdom versus lady folly. We are supposed to take possession of that wisdom in the same way that Adam was supposed to live in connection with Eve. The word used, and this is where the, the Bible project was really helpful, the word used there for helper is azer konegdo. And they point out that a single human, God sees it's not good because he says, he sees that a single human cannot accomplish man's purpose to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. That was his purpose. As a co-ruler with God by himself, he needs an azer konegdo. A helper, but much more than that, much more than the submissive help. The word actually means salvation. And that the only other time that word is connected to someone else in the Bible, it's connected to God, to the Holy Spirit. It's saying what I'm going to create for the man is as necessary to filling this earth and subduing it and having dominion over it and fulfilling my purpose for you as Jesus is to your own salvation. That's how important the woman is to the man and to the whole idea of stewarding the creation. In fact, it is through the woman that life comes. Life can't multiply. They can't spread out without the help of the woman. He needs someone, in a sense, to save him in order to do what he's created to do. He needs a complement, a co-laborer, a co-reigner, a co-ruler to get the job done, so God creates woman. Isha at ish. Woman from the side of man, not from the head, not from the foot, but from the side to rule together. And as they rule together and find wisdom from the right source, from God, and not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they live as they are meant to live. They have the wisdom they need to have dominion over the earth. And they can't have dominion over the earth without that wisdom. It's vital and necessary. He creates them to rule side by side. And again, just because he says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and once they do, their eyes are open, it's not saying that that tree is the only source of wisdom. It's actually saying that's the wrong wet place to go and get it. Get it in relationship and connection to me. But what does Eve do? She, she covets the tree. She, sees, she says, for the, the first time she says something as good is when she looks at the tree and she says, that looks good to eat. And she covets it. And she takes of it because of the lies of the serpent. And then the man participates in it equally in that fall. And it changes everything. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, again, the Bible project's helpful here in describing and helping define terms. That word evil is really not a great translation of what the Hebrew word is. The Hebrew word is actually raw, which really means bad. Tim Mackey points out an interesting insight that the word for bad, which is raw, is not always pertaining to moral evil. In fact, the word is used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to rotten or bad fruit or a bad tooth or something being unhelpful or harmful. Why is that important? This is why only translating the word as evil causes problems in reconciling how God works in other parts of the Bible where it says that God actually causes raw. He causes bad 
to happen to his enemy. God allows unhelpful and, and harmful things to happen to people to bring punishment and judgment and change people. He doesn't cause evil because he can't. It's not part of his character, but he causes bad. And when they eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that, their, their understanding is their understanding of what is unhelpful and what is harmful. It is not just about moral evil. It's about, um, it's about living in a way that is not helpful. And to live in relationship to God is the most helpful way for them to live. Makes it, it, it puts in perspective Solomon's request. He first referred to himself as a little child not knowing how to go out and how to come in. He needed wisdom from God as the source to know whether to even turn right or left. He recognizes his need to rely on God. And that's what God intended in the garden. So we don't get wisdom. So we can't think of the scriptures as just a book of rules, as we talk a lot about here. So in understanding our need to, to, uh, to obtain wisdom, wisdom is not obtained just by following the rules. Just as like it's not intellectual um, achievement, knowledge, it is also not just following the rules. It's a both and. It's all of these things together, living with God as the source. That's where we find it, in full dependence and humility upon him, where it gives us eternal purpose and freedom and security, a taste of Eden, of home, of shalom. I love the promise that God makes um, to Abraham. He says, as you find wisdom and walk in my ways, you will spread the peace and the joy of Eden to the world. So what I want to leave you with is, the, is what's at stake in our obedience. That when we find wisdom from the right place, other people benefit from it. The world benefits from it. So as Flat Rock is a people committed to following Jesus, to being and making disciples, and living as Jesus calls us to live, we will become wise together. We don't do this alone. We need each other. That's why we need women's Bible studies. That's why we need small groups. That's why we need to come to worship together. Because we need to be reminded of all the wrong places where we go to find wisdom throughout the week and be reoriented back to the right place to go and pursue that together. And as we do that, God promises that the nations will be blessed. So there's so much more at stake than just even our own personal well-being. It's about the cosmos. It's about the universe. It's about how God spreads the gospel, and he does. We are most effective and sharpest in his hands when we are finding wisdom from him. And that's where Jesus comes in, because he's the one who did that. He's the one who found wisdom from the right source. He succeeded where Adam and Eve failed. And he's our example of living in that humble submission and service to God in order to be fed and equipped with what we need. Let's pray.